for their underwriting of the SFA Cajun Country Virtual Summer Field Trip, their investment in the SFA mission, and their support of this episode of Gravy. SFA thanks our friends from Avery Island, Louisiana. McElhaney Company, maker of Tabasco brand products. Drive into most any city in the South and the approach is kind of the same. Dollar stores, ragtag strip malls, car repair shops, and chain restaurants. On the outskirts of Lafayette, Louisiana, an intriguing pattern emerges. Nestled among the Popeyes and the Canes are a bounty of restaurants named after gods and goddesses and seemingly inspired by ancient civilizations. Athena, Olympus, Poseidon, they all advertise Greek and Lebanese food. Here the form is so ubiquitous that deep-fried balls of falafel show up as often as deep-fried balls of boudin. Look closely on your road trip and a Middle Eastern food belt comes into focus along the highways of Acadiana. I'm John T. Edge. And I'm Melissa Hall. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. Sarah Holtz has the story of how Middle Eastern and Mediterranean cuisine took hold on the south edge of the Cajun Prairie. I'm sitting in a booth at Seuss Cafe on Pinhook Road in Lafayette, waiting for an order of falafel and to talk with one of the restaurant's owners, Yasser Balbisi. After spending close to a week in Lafayette, I've noticed that pan-Middle Eastern restaurants are ubiquitous here, and now I'd like to find out why. As it turns out, traditional dishes like kibbe and grape leaves are familiar to the Acadian palate, because Lebanese immigrants began arriving in southwest Louisiana as early as the 1880s. Journalist and oral historian Caroline Gerdes has written about her own Lebanese roots in Louisiana. She explained to me how she began to delve into this history. I grew up knowing that there is, you know, this huge Lebanese community in Southwest Louisiana, uh, my mom's family included. And I was curious, I finally thought as to the why, (laughs) you know, why was there such a large population here? Why is there, you know, so many Lebanese or Lebanese and Greek restaurants in, you know, Lafayette, Sulphur, Lake Charles, areas like that? The Lebanese Maronite Christians originally landed in New York, fleeing religious persecution and a series of conflicts with the Druzes that culminated in a civil war in 1860. Many Maronites were peddlers who walked along the southbound railroad line in search of opportunity. Within that group, a number of Lebanese families settled in southern cities and towns that were situated near agricultural regions, like Clarksdale in the Mississippi Delta and Lafayette. These refugees found common ground in southwest Louisiana, with the original Acadian exiles we now call Cajuns, who were forcibly removed from the Canadian maritime provinces by the British in the middle of the 18th century. Caroline says that many Lebanese Louisianans ended up in Acadiana, perhaps drawn in by their French cultural affinity. As Lebanon had had a French settlement in it, there was a common language between southwest Louisiana and Lebanon uh, in Francophone culture. So that was a really interesting um, connection when you think about uh, what might, you know, make Louisiana appealing. Local historian Yvonne Nasser Saloum has written about the amitié traditionnelle, or traditional friendship, between the Maronites and the French. 
Salum says that this relationship began as far back as the Crusades and continued through the Ottoman rule, when many Maronites began speaking French along with Arabic. Ivan Nasser Salum's father-in-law was a household name in Lafayette. Khalis Salum was a venerated judge who now has a busy Lafayette thoroughfare named in his honor. Khalis Saloum Road and its cross streets are dotted with Middle Eastern restaurants, owned by far more recent arrivals who emigrated from countries besides Lebanon. Azuz Cafe was one of the first Middle Eastern restaurants to hit it big in Acadiana, with the flagship opening in 2001. What began as a two-room restaurant on Pinhook Road in Lafayette now encompasses more than a dozen cafes, drive throughs and Zeus Express locations. You can find them in gas stations. There's a Zeus Express on the University of Louisiana at Lafayette campus. One franchise shares space with a Subway sandwich shop in Karen Crow. My name is Yasser Belbisi uh, from Jerusalem originally, and we, have, we started this family re- restaurant business, and we've been successful since. I met Yasser at one of the Zeus locations he manages, the original restaurant on Pinhook Road. Yasser told me that the community of Lafayette is the reason for Zeus's success. Lafayette was uh, the best choice for our business because I think if we opened anywhere else, we would not be as successful as we are now. Lafayette is the most welcoming uh, town. They took us as we are right the way, like... We have a lots of customers here, like, they come in here and if they see one of us, like, uh, sad or not happy that day, they come, li- literally, they come and ask us, well, what's wrong? Are you good? Are you okay today? Because I did not hear your voice today. And they're the kind of people that you, you, you grow a relationship with. Lafayette may have incubated Zeus, but by 2010, the restaurant chain's success enabled the Balbises to bring their cuisine back to the Middle East. We opened one in Jordan. I mean, for the Arabic country, they have this kind of food, which is their food. It's kind of funny, but it was a successful move. If Zeus Cafe is the Starbucks of Middle Eastern restaurants in Acadiana, a thriving restaurant chain, Cedar Deli is the mom-and-pop store around the corner, a beloved Lafayette establishment that opened its doors in 1981. Cedar's owner, Nabil Lowley, emigrated to Louisiana from Syria over 40 years ago. He serves Middle Eastern favorites like falafel and baba ganoush, but his business also thrives on Italian Louisiana staples, like mufalata sandwiches. His halloumi sub comes on po'boy bread. It's a happy marriage between the Middle East and South Louisiana. Nabil didn't arrive in Lafayette with restaurant aspirations. He comes from a family of artists and honed his craft in Florence, Italy, before following his late brother George, who was a ULL architecture professor, to Lafayette. When I came here, I was going to be an artist. I mean, I was going to be a painter and into art, but all my family came uh, two years after, and we ended up with opening a restaurant to survive, to, you know, to live. And it's, and it's the painting, it's in, inside of me. After 40 years of maintaining the deli and grocery, Nabil can now shift his focus back to his artwork and plans to convert half of the space into a gallery to exhibit his paintings. Still, Nabil cherishes the relationships he's cultivated with his customers over the decades. A lot of families and pass it to their children, and children, they come in and they say, oh, you remember I used to come with my dad, and now they're bringing their kids, you know. 
Fred Reggie and his family are multi-generational regulars of Cedar Deli. Fred has counted on Nabil's grocery selection for decades' worth of Lebanese home cooking. He provides a valuable resource (laughs) to this community. If you need any ingredients, that's the place to go. Fred has sourced everything from tahini and chickpeas for his hummus to the olives and cheeses that Nabil keeps well-stocked in his deli counter. This year marks the centennial of the Reggie family's emigration from Lebanon. Well, my father was an immigrant. He came to this country with his parents in 1920 with $18 in their pocket. They arrived at Ellis Island on July 11, 1920. That was really the beginning of the, of the Reggie family in the United States. When we come back, Fred and his daughter Simone talk through their family's 100-year history in Acadiana. But first... Simmons Catfish is a family-owned business that calls the Mississippi Delta home. The company is committed to quality catfish and, most importantly, to its employees. My name is Maria Esparza and I've been here 20 years at Simmons. I was born in Mexico, but I was raised in West Laco, Texas. When I was 19, they brought us over here to Simmons on a working contract, and I haven't went nowhere since then. Maria works as a strip table supervisor, cutting fish at the Simmons Processing Plant in Yazoo City, the same Delta town that gave us author Willie Morris. The Simmons Company recently honored her 20 years of service. Simmons marked her anniversary with a gift of a living room set, a dining room set, and more. She recalls the celebration fondly. Our people from the plant, they gave me some presents. I mean, it just felt good. They all got up, applause. It's just feeling good that you do for them and they do for you and they love you. I mean, like I said, this is family right here. We didn't go nowhere. You ain't gonna find another job like this. The next time you crave catfish, baked, fried, or in a stew, look for Simmons Farm Raised Catfish, a driver of the Delta economy, an employer with integrity, the home of Willie Morris and Maria Esparza. A list of vendors is online at SimmonsCatfish.com. For their commitment to quality catfish, their belief in their employees, and their support of this podcast, we thank them. At Ellis Island, the family name, Areji, became Reggie. Remember the Maronite Lebanese and the religious persecution they faced? The Reggie family was in the thick of it. Zarta which is the name of the village where my grandparents came from and my father came from, was really the stronghold of the Maronite community. Fred's not exactly sure how, but the Reggies made their way down to Louisiana and reunited with a family friend who had settled in Crowley, a town 25 miles west of Lafayette. Many of these Maronite families were merchants, and Crowley was strategically located along the railroad line. It was pretty much a a random shot based upon the fact that there were some people from their homeland and their home village that had settled there. Within eight years of their arrival in Acadiana, Fred's grandfather had opened three businesses, one of which was a grocery store. Through the generations, the food business continued to run deep in the extended family, too. Fred's mother's first cousin was the restaurateur and cookbook author, Bootsy John Landry, 
who published The Best of South Louisiana Cooking in 1983. Butsy's cookbook incorporates several Lebanese staples, like lentil salad and fatouche. According to Fred, Butsy's recipes originated in the Johns' home kitchen. It pretty much follows along the line of the food that we grew up with. Fred's daughter, Simone, has also carried the torch when it comes to cooking. After years of working in the food and beverage industry, she's now a brand ambassador for Tabasco. Simone says you can't talk about Reggie family traditions without talking about kibbe, a mixture of ground meat, cracked wheat, onions, pepper, allspice, and cinnamon. It's traditionally served raw, with olive oil and bread, but can also be formed into football-shaped balls and fried. One of the recipes that I think really every Lebanese family kind of cherishes is the way they make their kibinei. My dad is the master. But I just remember growing up that it was always, it was always a thing of where to get your kibbe meat. Kibbe can't just be made from the ground beef you get at the supermarket. It's essential that your kibbe meat is extremely fresh, and that it's the first thing into the grinder once the grinder is cleaned. Simone's grandmother sourced her kibbe meat from one trusted butcher. These days, her father uses sirloin for his kibbe. Most traditional Lebanese dishes require an elevated degree of attention. Fred can still picture the methodical way in which his mother and aunt made baklava. We call it baklava. We would have baklava at Christmas time. And in those days, you couldn't go to the grocery store and buy a package of phyllo dough. You had to make your own phyllo dough. They would literally spend two days making baklava. They would take, first of all, to make the phyllo dough, they would take freshly laundered white sheets. They would stand there and they would stretch that dough on those sheets and work it and stretch it to the paper-thin consistency that we all come to know as phyllo. Then they would take the dough and they would tear it off to fit the size of the pan and each layer was buttered and my grandmother would butter hers with a goose feather instead of a brush because she says it applied just the right amount of butter on each layer. When Fred was growing up, savoring this food was often just as important a family ritual as making it. Making and eating stuffed grape leaves was almost a sacred rite in the Reggie family. Very few grape leaves ever made it to the dining room table because as soon as we would all come in, and and a lot of us would come in from 11 o'clock mass, as soon as we would come in, we would head straight for the kitchen, and there was a big pot of grape leaves that had just finished cooking, and we would literally devour that pot of grape leaves by just eating them out of the pot. So even to this day, that's kind of a tradition. Whenever there are grape leaves on the stove, people will assemble in front and just kind of pick at it, one, you know, pick one or two or three or four or, or whatever. And it's rare that grape leaves ever make it to the table, uh, certainly not in the entirety that they were prepared. Simone recalls the moment she recognized the significance of her grandmother's grape leaves recipe, which she prepared with freshly ground beef, rice, and spices. I remember sitting there and she was getting older and I was like, you've got to tell us how to make these grape leaves because when you're gone, they're gone. As Simone spoke reverently about her favorite family recipes, she noted how often cayenne pepper shows up. The Reggies have been in Acadiana for multiple generations now, and several of their traditional dishes have gotten the Cajun treatment. You know, there's such a huge Lebanese community in the Lafayette area, 
and I'm, everybody has kind of improvised their recipes a little bit, but they all have a little kick to it. And so I think that's where the term Lebecajan came from. In 1994, Fred Reggie opened a restaurant in Lafayette that was neither traditional Lebanese nor Lebecajan, but rather an Italian eatery called Spazio Trattoria. Fred explained why he leaned away from Lebanese cuisine. Look, when you open a Lebanese restaurant, that's a serious commitment. Those are not recipes that can just easily be taught. There, there are nuances to preparing a lot of these dishes that if you were not raised around it, if you don't know what it's supposed to taste like, then it ain't going to happen. Still, I asked Fred if Spazio's menu revealed any Lebanese influences. Yes, there was. <laughs> in fact, in fact, I even I even had a Mediterranean plate, and I did serve fried kibbe, the little kibbe footballs with tabbouleh, and a uh, little hummus, and some uh, grilled garlic chicken. Spazio Trattoria closed in 1998, and since then, the Reggie family has witnessed a new wave of pan Middle Eastern restaurants rush into the Lafayette area. When I was driving around the city, basically wherever I saw a Middle Eastern restaurant, attached to it was the generic label Greek and Lebanese. I approached a few restaurant owners, like Yasser Balbisi and Nabil Loli, only to find out that they hail from countries outside of Greece and Lebanon. Simone and Fred agree that Greek and Lebanese is palatable verbiage for diners who haven't eaten a lot of Middle Eastern cuisine, but might know someone who's Greek or Lebanese. You know, they grew up with so-and-so, or they grew up with, you know, they know somebody who came from a Lebanese family. And so it's probably something that's familiar. I think the term Greek Lebanese, is the Greek part is just kind of a hook to make people more comfortable because at one time, Lebanese food might have just been kind of a foreign thing to most people, but now it's a staple. For Fred, many of these restaurants miss the mark when it comes to traditional Lebanese fare the way he knows it. That seems unusual in a region with such a strong Lebanese presence you didn't find as much of a representation of Lebanese cuisine in the community as there are Lebanese people, <laughs> right? And really, we do not have what, you, what I would consider a typical traditional Lebanese restaurant here. For Simone, that's because few can replicate homegrown Lebanese recipes. I don't feel that there are many restaurants that can do home cooking Lebanese food. I think because it's a lot of work. Plus, taking home-cooked Lebanese food out of the home might fundamentally alter the social custom it represents. I think so, and it's just so much more of like an intimate, it's a bonding, right? It's a family gathering, and if you take it into the restaurant, then it might lose that. Fred Reggie believes that the specificity of home-cooked Lebanese cuisine also says something about Lebanese food culture in general. Lebanese people, if you haven't figured it out, are very, very particular about their food because we all grew up with mama's food or grandma's food and you get spoiled and every family prepares it a little differently. Some use a little more allspice, some use a little less, some put more lemon juice, some put more this, more that. And we, we really become spoiled and, and we're indoctrinated to believe that nobody can fix Lebanese food like the people in our family. Well, you know, she doesn't really do that great a job on her kibbe or, you know, this one or that. So it was always kind of amusing because 
no no grandmother or no Lebanese mother wanted to relinquish her status as being just a phenomenal cook. That's certainly the case in the Reggie family, where food has become a great unifier. In my family, all our memories are surrounded by food. And I think a lot of Lebanese families can attest to this. You know, some families, their bonding is they go fishing or they play tennis together or some families watch football. Well, ours, it was eating and it was sharing meals together. It's about that whole family interaction, that dynamic, that love. Man, it, you know, if you want to talk about food being a labor of love, it was a labor of love. That's what we grew up with. While the food is wonderful, the food provides a foundation for the assembly of the family. When, when you announce that, hey, this is, <laughs> this is going to be a Lebanese meal, well, everybody's going to show up for it. Eating is a big component of it, but it's the gathering. After more than a century of Lebanese history in Acadiana, these traditions are embedded in the food culture of Lafayette. It lives on in household pantries, family recipes, and in collective memory. Sarah Holtz reported and produced this episode. As of May 11th, when we recorded this epilogue, Cedar Deli is temporarily closed. Most other locations in this episode are open for carryout. Special thanks go to who, Jaunty? We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music, and Ryan Fertel for lending us his Cajun country expertise. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Mollum. Mary Beth Lassiter serves as our publisher. Hurrah! With support from McElhaney Company, maker of Tabasco brand products, SFA launched our new free app, SFA Stories. Visit the App Store on your device to download. And then hit the road to explore Cajun country with SFA as your navigator. Visit us at southernfoodways.org to learn more. And if you're not, to become a member. We need you, baby. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for letting us pour some gravy in your ear.